Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. They shouldn't have offered and God struck them down. And then a little bit later, uh, uh, King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, he offers a sacrifice to God, again, not something that he should have done. And that ended up with him losing his kingship, but more than that, him losing his mind because God removed his presence from his life. At this time, Uzziah would have already known all of those stories. It would have been inbred into him. He would have heard these stories again and again of what you should do with God's presence. And so when he reaches out and touches the ark, which is something that God did not allow any man to do, the way that they were supposed to uh, uh, handle the ark was that they had these poles along the side and they were meant to carry it on their shoulders, not on some kind of cart, not some kind of human being needing to uh, uh, stabilize it. They were meant to carry it in a very reverential way. And so when they didn't do that, Uzziah bore the brunt of the judgment. And it sounds... At the same time, I know it sounds a little bit crazy how maybe you could call it pedantic, how God interacted with human beings. Why would he be so mean and nasty about how we're supposed to approach him? But what we need to understand is that when God does something, it is out of his love that he does it. And therefore, why he was... Uh, why he had put such a law in place was because he was trying to protect. He was trying to protect these people, these Israelites, so that they would still be able to have a relationship with God. For example, when we read Exodus chapter 33, verse 19 to 20, Moses is before God. And he says to God, uh, I want to see you. And so this is God's response. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. For man shall not see me and live. What we need to understand, and this is something that is said again and again in the Old Testament, that God is holy, which simply means that He is pure and set apart. He is without any blackness, corruption, sin, any, any blackness, if you will, uh, in, in, in who He is. But us as human beings, we are the complete opposite. We are unholy. We, we, we are corrupted people who have done wrong things. We have sin all over us. And what happens, the Old Testament describes it, when we come into God's presence, that unholiness is highlighted in the light of God's goodness and His holiness, and we die. Isaiah met with God just as he was commissioned. Isaiah was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. But at the start of his career, if you will, he meets with God. And as he meets with God, uh, he sees this vision of God and heaven. And he immediately falls to his knees and he says, Woe is me, for I have seen the Lord. Even though he loved God, seeing God highlighted how broken and how corrupted he was. And he wanted to die. So God instituted a bunch of practices to help us 
be holy enough to enter into His presence. That is the point of a lot of the law, the ceremonial practices of the, uh, of the book of Leviticus, and you can read them again in Deuteronomy. They are there because God wanted a relationship with us. And He wanted that relationship with us, and He knew that if we were to have that relationship without dealing with our unholiness and our sin, we will all be dead. So you see how God wanted to have something personal with the people of Israel. This is an important thing. And Uzziah's case is a case where God was showing people, you guys got to get this right because I want this relationship with you. I have already given you all the things that you need in order to protect you, in order to set you apart so that I can have this relationship with you. God had initiated and let the people know the rules of engagement. And it's so cool that God never wanted those rules of engagement to be eternal. Because what we had is that we have this New Testament in the whole Bible. And this New Testament reveals to us what God really wanted in terms of our relationship with Him. One of my favorite verses of all times comes from Hebrews 4 verse 16 and it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God encourages, God desires for us to come into His presence not with fear and trembling, but with confidence, knowing that our unholiness is no longer a barrier between us and Him. Why is it no longer a barrier? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus' death and resurrection ushers in a whole new rules of engagement with how we react and how we interact with God. And when we as Christians understand that we have these new rules of engagement, it changes the whole way we see our Christian walk. No longer are we trying desperately to get right with God in order to have a relationship with Him. Right now, we are supposed to see ourselves as having been made right, and therefore, we have this relationship with God. That's what the whole gospel is about. If you think that Christianity is about following a bunch of rules, you have got it completely wrong. Christianity is about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about what you can offer God. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God has already done for you. That's why this is the best news in the world. The only thing that God has required of us is faith. Is saying you need faith, you accept me into your heart, you are right with me, you have this access to the throne of grace. Throne of grace is this amazing place, I would imagine. It's a spiritual place. I don't think I've seen it yet with my own eyes. And I can't wait to. But it's a place where we access everything that we ever need from God. But knowing that the rules of engagement has changed makes Ananias and Sapphira's story all the more puzzling. It makes it really strange and it sticks out like a sore thumb. See, in the New Testament, only two groups of people died because of God. 
One of them was King Herod, who was one of the most evil kings. Uh, and you can read his history, and you will see how detestable and how terrible he was as a king. And so his death is kind of like, yeah, cool. I can understand that. It's kind of like he was a Hitler of that kind of time. And then you have Ananias and Sapphira, and their story just is strange. And we're going to read it right now in Acts 5, 1 to 16. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, by the way, carrying him out and burying him was actually cultural. It was what they needed to do. Uh, you do not allow a dead body to uh, just remain. And so they were not trying to hide Ananias, by the way. This was just a cultural practice. They needed to bury the body straight away. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together uh, to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. At first look, this is one of the most disturbing accounts in the Bible. And it strikes a chord because this is meant to be after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is supposed to be the time of grace. But this couple, they tell a lie and they die. I just made a rap there. That's a good rap, isn't it? They lie and they die. Just remember that, guys. And I um, lost my train of thought. They lie and they die. And I think we can relate to that because I think the sin of lying is something that all of us have done and probably still continue to do to some extent. When's the next lie going to lead to your death? It's something that's a little bit creepy and it's a little bit disconcerting. It's like, how do I dare be in God's presence if all it takes is a lie and then I'm dead? Moreover, when you think about this, Ananias and Sapphira, they actually brought money to the church. They were actually doing a good thing by bringing money to the church, trying to support people that didn't have enough money. So wouldn't that good deed have at least helped to offset the sin of lying? This is really strange. It is completely Weird that God would just look at that couple and go, you know what, they deserve death. Off with their, well, they didn't have their heads chopped off, but off with their life and, 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 and they died immediately. It's, it's, it's difficult for us to understand. And so first we need to understand a little bit of the backstory. And before um, uh, the account Ananias and Sapphira, the verses before that, this is what they say. Um, 
what had happened, sorry, let me just uh, lay a bit of foundation. But this uh, account happened probably months after the church was birthed. The day of Pentecost had taken place only a few months before that. This was the church in its early form. This was a church that had not yet become a full-on structured organization that we see today. This was really, really early on. And at the same time, even though it was early on, the church people so loved God that they were willing to do amazing, crazy acts of sacrificial uh, 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 service for, for other people. And this is what we read in Acts 4, 34. 37 there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands and or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to each as any had need thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas which means son of encouragement a Levite a native of Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles feet the church was so alive. They were so moved by what God had done and the message of the cross that these people who had more than enough were willing to get rid of the excess stuff in order to bless those who had need. This was a church that was truly alive. This was a church, and you can read about it. The early church, they, they were devoted to God. The message of the cross meant something to them so that they were really trying to live out what Jesus had taught. They were really trying to look after the poor and the widow. They were really trying to live out a faith that meant something. And in the process of doing so, the community of Christians became a revolutionary community. Their, 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 their fame started to spread and people were thinking, man, that community, they are, there's something different about them. And their community continued to grow. They continued to grow because there were people, there were Christians who were living out a Christian faith that actually looked like they believed in God. Yeah, wow. I would not be surprised that people started to look at that community and go, I wonder how to be, a, how, how can I be a part of it? Imagine if you started to hear stories of a group of people that were willing, without any strings attached, as long as you belong to their community, as long as you're meeting up with them and they hear that you have need, they were willing to sell property, sell houses in order to meet your needs. Can you imagine? It would not be a stretch of imagination to think that this was a community that was radically growing. And at the same time, we hear the story of a man named Joseph, whom the apostles then renamed to be Barnabas. Now, because we have the beauty of hindsight, we know that Barnabas is one of the great missionaries at the start of the church. In fact, it was because of Barnabas that the apostle Paul began his missionary journeys. Without Barnabas, it can be argued that there would not be a church like this today, because the church would not have gone past Israel. And so Barnabas, he is a significant player in the Bible. Sorry, player is the wrong word. <laughs> wrong error. I'm not allowed to use that word anymore. He's a significant character in the history of the church. But his story begins here. Barnabas, who was Joseph, was just a 
business owner of some description and he had property and he saw what the church was doing and he went, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think God wants me to, to do something about this need. And so I'm going to sell that property. I'm going to take all of that and give it to the church. Perhaps, perhaps Joseph was the first person to do that. I don't know. But his act so encouraged the church, so moved the church that the apostles, the leader of the church, came to him and said, we're not going to call you Joseph anymore. We're going to call you the son of encouragement. We're going to rename you. In Jewish culture, to rename someone is a very significant thing. Joseph, who is now Barnabas, received a lot of prestige and honor because of his sacrificial acts, because he was going around encouraging people through the things that he did. And it stands to reason that Ananias and Sapphira, they had been a part of the community for a little while now. They were probably reasonably well-off people because they had property to sell. And so they saw Barnabas and they go, man, this is my imagination, but you can test it for yourself. I, I think they saw this and they went, hey, we're business people. We stand again. We sell one of our properties. We give the money to this group of people and they change our name and everyone wants to do business with us. Makes sense. We actually get something back in return for what we've given. Oh, by giving all of the proceeds from sale of one of our properties, that Let's give 70%. Let's give 70%. It's still a significant sum, but we'll tell them that it's a whole thing so that they will want to do business with us. They will think that we're really generous people. Can you see the contrast between Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas? Can you see that one was motivated out of a love for people and a generosity that was activated because of his faith? and a couple of self-seeking people that were trying to get something out of the church. You see, when we look at that account, it's easy to think that Ananias and Sapphira's one sin was that they lied and kept a part of the money for themselves. But that's not the case. Ananias and Sapphira's sin was that they were trying to get something out of the church. They were self-seeking and trying to do a business transaction to get something out of the church. They were greedy, envious, jealous, prideful people. You know, we think that they, we don't get their backstory. We don't get uh, chapters upon chapters of where they were going and what they had done. But it, it, they would have been part of this community for a little while now. They would have been there. Uh, uh, Peter knew their names. The leader of the church knew who these people were. He had been preaching to them, getting to know them. They were part of the community. They had heard about this Jesus man who was God as well, who had died upon the cross but rose again on the third day. They had heard all that stuff. They liked all that stuff, but they weren't willing to really commit to the church. And at the first opportunity that they saw that they could get something back out of this community to take something out for themselves, they did it. And... and what we need to understand is that it's really interesting because nowhere in this passage did Peter ever pronounce judgment upon Ananias. And the Bible does not record that God struck Ananias down. 
Instead, what it records is that Peter spoke to Ananias and said, why has Satan so filled your heart? He said, you had that stuff. You didn't need to do anything like that about it. But then you decided to lie to God. After he heard that, Ananias dies. Now, some scholars say that God didn't necessarily need to kill Ananias. He just simply removed his protection because maybe a little bit like the Old Testament, they were now standing in God's presence and they had now seen the holiness of God. And because they hadn't accepted Jesus into their lives, their sin was made known. And their big sin, the big problem was that they had allowed Satan to fill their heart. Satan in the Bible, what we need to understand is that he, the works that he does brings, what he does is that he steals, kills, and destroys. And so when Ananias and Sapphira come into God's presence without allowing Jesus to do a forgiving, redemptive work in their lives, the death and destruction that they allowed into their lives just simply became manifest. Do you know that you can be coming to church week after week after week after week, maybe year after year after year after year, but if you are not giving your life to Jesus, nothing really changes. The equation is still the same. We serve a holy God and we are unholy people. We cannot... Stand in God's presence. The only way, the only way, the only way we get to stand in God's presence is if we allow Jesus to do His redemptive work in our lives, which is a free gift. And here's the tension of Christianity because God's gift is so free, given so freely, that sometimes we forget that He is still God, that He is holy, that He is righteous, and that He's created us to have that righteousness and sinless and blameless life. He knows that we can't do it, so He's done something about it. But some of us still live as though we can take His grace for granted. I wonder what it was like if someone died here today because they lied to God. What would that mean for us? We think that that would destroy the church. The church grew two centuries, two thousand years ago, two millennia ago. They grew because people saw God's still alive. Now, I'm not in, don't kill anyone. If someone lies to you, ticks you off, you don't get to kill them. Allow God to do his judging work. But what I'm saying, what I'm trying to communicate is that maybe the church has lost a little bit of the reverence for who God is. Ananias and Sapphira deemed, deemed it smart, wise, clever to try to get something out of the church and instead found their sin exposed and the death that they had allowed into their hearts just took root, just took hold. And there's another thought that I have as well. Remember that this is the church in the early days. This was the church months after he had been conceived and perhaps God knew that at that early stage, 
The church needed to be its truest expression, its most pure expression of what he had in his heart. And that expression was one of selfless, intentional generosity, one of outrageous faith in a God who provides and a God who, who deserves more than I could ever give. And Ananias and Sapphira represented a virus, a cancer that would enter the church and if left to continue on, it would allow this selfishness, this self-centeredness, this self-seeking behavior to become the norm because it's so much easier to live that way than it is to live a selfless life. Maybe God took such drastic action because he knew that he needed to protect his bride, his church. Which puts this really scary thought in my head. How are we doing as the church in the 21st century? How are we doing? Do we represent the pure, beautiful, spotless bride that God had in his heart? Or have we allowed certain cancers and viruses to enter our lives? Are we coming to church because it's a benefit to ourselves alone? Or are we activated to see that God's actually, God's actually called us to something so much more? Imagine what the town of Vic Park would look like if our church... 100% was committed to what God wanted to do, the way that the early church was. Now, I'm not saying that we're not generous church, because we are. I'm not saying that you are terrible people, because that's not what I'm talking about. But even for me, searching out this scripture and, and learning about it, I struggle. Because I, I feel like maybe I've been holding back. Maybe we're making it too easy. <laughs> You can come to a Sunday morning, you can have the nice sweets and coffees and you might not even be listening to me right now and it's okay. You might be on your phone looking at Facebook and that seems to be okay nowadays. But what happened if our church was so captured? You know, people not rocking up to church an hour late and going, well, I was at church. I'm not trying to look at anyone here. I'm just kind of putting things out there. I'll close my eyes so that you don't think I'm blaming you. You know, you, you rock up whenever you want. You leave whenever you want. You, you do your things that make you feel good and then you go home and think that you've done your religious duty and that God's happy with you and so you can continue on with your life. Or, or, or should our church be a bit more like people that's like, we can't wait to be able to serve our community. We can't wait to be generous with our time, with who we are. I'm not talking about you selling a house and giving us the money. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a heart that says, I want to live a Christian life. I want to live not a minimum Christianity. 
you know, this is a thought I had at the start of the year. How many Christians are living a minimum Christianity? I am just doing enough to get myself into heaven and stuff everyone else. Because I, that's not the pattern of Christianity that I see in the Bible. And it challenges me. Because sometimes I don't like people. And sometimes people get on my nerves. And sometimes I don't want to be generous. And sometimes I think, what about me? And what do I want? And what do I need? But if everyone thought that way, and that was the only way that the Christians live, of course the world is looking at us and laughing at us. Of course they're saying that's the most unloving, ungenerous, stuck-in-the-mud organization we have in Australia. But we can turn that around if a church truly understood its purpose, its position, and its call. But for the church to look like that, you don't need a shouting Asian pastor. You need Christians that are actually going, I'm supposed to be a part of that. I'm supposed to be doing something in my school. It doesn't mean that you're standing on your canteen table and shouting the gospel out. But it might mean looking for the person that needs love more than you do. The one who's come from a family where the parents have abused and neglected them. And maybe you've got a little bit of lunch extra. You could do with one sandwich instead of two. And you go, all right, let me do this. I don't need to shout it from the mountaintops. I'm just trying to do something. I'm just trying to do something. I'm just trying to do something. I'm not trying to get anyone to love me more. I'm not trying to get my value from everywhere else because I know that God died for me and that's enough for me. And therefore, I can do whatever it takes to bring the gospel wherever I go. When we get so caught up in our selfish ways, that's why depression is sweeping through our nation. Because we are so caught up about whether I've got enough or not. When God said, I've given you everything that you need, the Bible says it again and again. Now listen to me. I'm shouting at myself because there are days I wake up and I say, it's not enough, God. I need more. And I still have those days where God is like trying to scream to me from His Scripture, from other people, just from His Spirit in my heart and saying, Nate, why are your eyes still closed? So my love and my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. So I'm standing here as someone who still needs to learn so much from this journey. I don't stand here as a person who's gone before that much. I don't stand here as a person who's made it. I stand here as a person who has a message in his heart that God's placing it and saying, what if, what if, what if Christians look like Christians? We read the story of Ananias and Sapphira and my initial thought is like, crap, I'm in trouble. When God was simply leaving that story in there and said, come on, you're so much better than that. You've got so much more in you than you ever realize. Do you want a cure to depression and anxiety? Do you want a cure to those dark thoughts in your mind? Start to realize what you already have. Start to realize your life was never meant to be your own. Start to realize that God's placed you on this earth not to earn more, not to go on more holidays, not to collect experiences, but to actually live a life of meaning and purpose. That's why we are spending a whole month talking about what God has gifted us with. Because Christianity needs to kick up its butt. I need to kick up my butt. I get too comfortable 
stand here and preach to you guys every week and I think I've done my Christian duty. Is that really it? Is that really all it is? I heard this terrible statistic the other week. And for me, this is one of those shifts that we are having in today's world. But in Australia, we've tipped over the 50% mark of broken marriages. We've tipped over. The majority of marriages lead to divorce today in Australia. That tells me that there are more broken people in there. The stats don't lie. The studies don't lie. You can say, we left each other and it would have been better for our children. Now, if you've divorced, here, I'm not trying to blame you. I'm just trying to paint a picture of where our world's going. We've got more children that are needing love, parental love, than ever before. We're needing more people who are willing to be selfless in order for our world to find a healing that God's intended. We are at a tipping point in today's culture and today's day. I thank you for allowing me to speak about Ananias and Sapphira. It's a story that is tough, a story that is difficult, and it's not a story that's easy to swallow because it represents a little bit in all of us. God's called us to be more like Barnabas, but yet I will be honest and I say I'm probably more like Ananias and Sapphira. Why haven't I been struck down with Ananias and Sapphira did? I feel like there's one consistent thing that you can find in all of Scripture why someone received judgment and why someone else didn't is because the person that receives grace is always repentant. Always repentant. They find, we find that, and that obviously is a bit tough to tell because the person that was judged is dead, but God knows the person's heart and whether they are willing to turn things around or not. The fact that you are here tells me that there's something in you that desires to walk away from the world and desires to walk in the ways of God. And so right now, if we can get the band up, my time's nearly up. I want to talk to two groups of people today. The first group of people are those that haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I don't care if you've been in church for a hundred years. That doesn't make you a person of faith. I don't care if you sung all the songs and said all the words, but if in your heart you know that you haven't truly given yourself to God, you haven't said to God, God, I'm willing to give up everything for you. If you haven't said, God, I realize that I need saving and that I need you more than anything else in the world, then perhaps now is the right moment for you to say that prayer. I'm not talking about some kind of feeling or some kind of experience. I'm talking about a conviction and a decision that comes out of a place of, I need, I need this. So if every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to lead you in a prayer that accepts Jesus into your life as your Lord and your Savior. I'm going to count to three. If you want me to say this prayer over you, with you, to lead you in this prayer, why don't you just pop your hand up and then back down again. So every eye closed, every head bowed, let this be a private moment. I'm going to count to three now. One, two, three. Is there anyone here that would like to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior? 
Awesome. Fantastic. Let's say this prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I have sinned. I know I've fallen short. But thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. Forgive me, Lord. I make you Lord and Savior of my life. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.